This is an echo from the past, a rerun if you will. And in this way new listeners can catch up and old listeners can reminisce about the past. Everybody wins. This one was released on the 16th of November 2014. And in this episode I'm talking to Gart van Genip in Iquitos, Peru when I was there many years ago. And we discuss his book, uh, we discuss Ayahuasca, Icaros, Iquitos and many other things. Enjoy. You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome. This is episode number 12 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. And my name is Alex and I'll be your host. And right now I'm in Iquitos in northern Peru, uh, right where the Amazonian rainforest is located. And uh, there's a lot of noise behind me and that's uh, heavy traffic in this early morning. All the uh, motor taxis. And um, uh, we are going to listen to now a conversation I had with uh, an author called uh, Gart van Genip. And um, I think that's how you pronounce it, I'm not sure. Um, and I talked to him last night at uh, dawn on the Amazon Cafe and we talked about his book we talked about Iquitos, about shamanism, ayahuasca and many other things so uh, please enjoy okay so uh, please uh, tell me a little bit about your book the name and what it's about my book's title is Shamans and Charlatans. It's a, a novel, but it's based on my experiences living in Iquitos for eight years. Uh, as a, uh, When I first moved here, I got to know ayahuasca. I learned a little bit about it. Later, when I was running a jungle lodge, I uh, organized a number of uh, uh, ceremonies with different shamans. And, um, well, shamans are healers, doctors, and there's a lot uh, to tell about uh, healing the way it's done here in Iquitos from the, the traditional hospitals to the people who call themselves shamans. Of course, there's also a lot of people who are out just trying to make money and uh, who uh, don't mind cheating other people in the process. And so all the experiences I have with that, I turn into a, a story that's being told by several different characters. And it turned out to be a pretty nice book. I was uh, I was pretty proud uh, with uh, with the result. The ending is uh, is a surprise. It's about a man who lives in San Francisco and who is bored with his life. He has a midlife crisis. He's tired of his wife, and uh, and he uh, has a dream. And in this dream, a shaman appears and summons him to come see him and and heal his life, basically. This man is a skeptic, he doesn't believe all that stuff, but he decides, well, what the hell, I'm just burning all my bridges and I'm going to Iquitos and I'm going to find this shaman. And eventually he does. In the meantime, he meets all these different people here, a lot of characters uh, who are based on real people. I would say the stories in the book are about 80% true and 20% fiction. And so in the end he finds what he's looking for, but there is a, there is a hidden uh, element that doesn't come out. Uh, until the very end of the story, so that's uh, I don't want to give it away. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a bio- biographical book in part a way. Part of it. Part of it. One of the characters in the book is uh, is based on me myself, the owner of a lodge in the jungle, and he tells uh, a number of stories that uh, that are straight out of my own life. And I've uh, 
I've told these stories to be as true as possible. So I haven't invented anything. I haven't added anything. I haven't uh, made stuff up. Uh, but this person is telling a number of these stories. Some of the stories happen to the main character. The main character is not the person that is based on me. It's one of the people he meets here. And, uh, and so it's a, it, it was a good way to tell a lot of those stories. People have been urging me to write a book about my experiences here. And I found that uh, doing it in a form of a novel was the, wor the way that worked best for me. So that's how it uh, came about. Yeah. So, um, have you written other things, or was this the first try? Uh, this is my fifth book. Uh, I am from Holland. I uh, grew up in the Netherlands, and when I lived there about 12 years ago, I wrote three books in Dutch that are uh, what you would call uh, youth adventure books. Uh, stories about three teenagers in high school who, uh, uh, who have all kinds of adventures. And uh, I wrote those books that never went anywhere, they were never published. And uh, I wasn't that motivated to pursue it, I just did it for fun. And then uh, I wrote this book, I found out that these days you can easily self-publish books online, uh, print to order, it doesn't cost a penny. And so whatever you write you can have published and you have to do your own promotion and, uh, and that, works, uh, that works fine. And so I also published those three books that I'd already had on the shelf for 12 years. And I wrote a, a short book, a short booklet with an introduction to Iquitos as a city and the world of ayahuasca to explain to people uh, in, in, a, in a normal, down-to-earth manner what kind of a town this is, what its history is, and also what ayahuasca is and, uh, and what it isn't. And... Uh, that's only 28-page booklet, and uh, but I think it's a, a fair and useful introduction for people who are interested in coming here for ayahuasca. And uh, any advice if you come here to Iquitos? Because in the cafe we were sitting, uh, we recently just had two uh, charlatans, I guess you could say, <laughs> yes. uh, and uh, they were actually. Uh, asking me if I wanted to go to their little jungle retreat and it do ayahuasca with them. Yeah, these two are amazing. They're completely lost touch with reality. It's, uh, there's a lot of people like that here. Um, advice for people who want to come to Iquitos uh, for ayahuasca is do your homework. Do your homework, prepare, find out online, get reviews, get references. Uh, uh, there's a lot of information out there these days, and but you have to find out which places are genuine bona fide places where you can go and have a good experience. Mm. Never ever engage with people like these who are out on the street and who say that they can uh, that they can go someplace and you can have an ayahuasca experience. That's really a bad idea. Mm. And so uh, do your homework. That's the best advice I can give people. Study the, the subject, uh, stick to the diet before you go, take it seriously. Ayahuasca is not a joke. It's a very powerful jungle medicine and uh, it's, it's to be taken very seriously. Fortunately, most people do. Most people who come here are well prepared and have, have the information they need and, uh, and, and know what they're getting into because it's not easy. Ayahuasca is, uh, is not something you do for fun and that's uh, what people must realize. What was it that brought you to Iquitos? Tourism. I came here as a tourist to see the, the rainforest. Uh, I was here the first time in 2005. That was my fourth trip to Peru. But the first time I went to the rainforest, and um, 
I spent eight days here and liked it enough to want to come back. And then when I was back in Holland, I did a little research and I found out I could teach English here. And so I came back to Peru a year later. I did a TOEFL course. I got certified as an English teacher. And then I came here and I taught English in Iquitos for five years. And, uh, and then I went and uh, took over the San Pedro Lodge. Yeah. So you discovered ayahuasca here? Yes, yeah. I'd never heard of it. I'll tell you in all honesty, I haven't, the first time I heard about ayahuasca, I had already been here more than a year. Because in those days, no gracias chico, no, no, no. Uh, in, in those days it wasn't a subject. And it's gone very quickly in just a few years' time that you find all these people here and all they talk about is ayahuasca. In 2006, 2007, nobody talked about it. Um, neither the local population, but also the tourists. It was then maybe 1% of all people came for the ayahuasca. And now it's 20, 25%. So yeah, it's a double-edged sword because it's very good that I think that it, many people in the West get exposed to this because it can uh, improve their lives and also probably infect the Western society, <laughs> hopefully, make it yes. better. Yeah. But then it's also because it, when it becomes more popular, money gets involved and yes. uh, you yes. get the charlatans, I guess. So. Yes, that's, that's inevitable. Yeah. Um, that is part of it. That has also been a very big part of the debate locally mm. about ayahuasca. There's many gringos here who have come for ayahuasca, who work with ayahuasca, who offer ayahuasca ceremonies, and uh, the debate about the authenticity and about the money. Money never used to be a, uh, never used to be a, a, a factor in ayahuasca. In the old days, you had a shaman. A shaman is just a doctor. He's a healer. He's not some kind of spiritual guru. That's not uh, not the history at all. And so if you were sick, you would go find a shaman and tell him what's wrong with you. And the shaman would drink the ayahuasca, not you. And then the ayahuasca would help him diagnose the patient and learn from the plants how to treat the patient. And then he would treat the patient. And if the, tra if the treatment worked, the, the, you would give the shaman a fish or a chicken. And that was the end of the deal. And then he would go back to work on his field uh, growing bananas or whatever it is he was doing. And then all of a sudden, from all over the world, these people come and they bring a lot of money. And there's a lot of money to be made. That also brings out the, the, the liars and the thieves and the con men. And, uh, but uh, yeah, so that's, that's changed a lot. It's changed Iquitos, it's changed shamanism. All of a sudden, people are drinking ayahuasca. That, never, that was never the case before. But apparently, this is the right time for it. Uh, the people who, who drink ayahuasca say that ayahuasca itself, the spirit plant, has decided that it is time to expand and go to other countries and educate people and help people uh, to find a spiritual growth and, uh, and healing. Get out of the closet. Yes, yeah, yeah. All of a sudden she's ready to travel. People refer to ayahuasca as a, as a female entity. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, and uh, so that has changed very rapidly in, uh, in, a, very, in, in a very short time uh, worldwide. Although ayahuasca has been known, of course, to some Westerners for decades, uh, all of a sudden it's taking off. And um, I'm sure the internet has a lot to do with that. Um, times change and, so, and money is a, a factor that is inevitable. And that also helps a lot of people because I just watched a video today of some girl who was complaining about all the ayahuasca souvenirs and ayahuasca tourism. 
I don't think it's such a bad thing. You know, it helps a lot of people. And she says, but it's not authentic anymore. I said, who are we to tell people you got to stay authentic so you can't send your children to college? That's, you know, that's nonsense. Uh, these people have the same rights as we do. And if they can make money, if they can uh, improve their lives because of it, well, then so be it, you know? Mm. What do you think is important for Ikito so it doesn't go the other way? So it's all charlatans and... Yeah, I was I was worried about that for a long time, uh, especially in the beginning when I said it can go either way. It can become the Mecca of ayahuasca or it can become the Las Vegas of ayahuasca. But a lot of that depended, as it turns out, depended on the people who come here. I was worried that a lot of people would think it was a party drug and then would come here uneducated and all kinds of accidents would happen. And that hasn't happened. Still, most people come here already know about ayahuasca and they come for the ayahuasca and they're well well educated and well prepared so in that respect it's not a bad thing very few people come here and then hear about it for the first time and decide oh that's something i want to try because they just want to try another high you know um, oh, wait a minute hi papacito it's a little papaso climbing on my leg wait a beetle this is a this is a bug they call papaso. It was climbing on my foot, but they have very sharp little claws. They're harmless, they're very sweet. I often save them here because when they land on their back they can't get back up and then they die. And so this is a small one. That's a small one. <laughs> this is a small one, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This one still has a lot of growing to do. So let me put that over there. So he can go on safely, just a moment. question uh, I can't remember <laughs> <laughs> I think you answered it about uh, how to take care of the the growing popular yes yeah I like your yeah. description of the Mecca or the Las Vegas yes yeah, yeah. I guess it's, it's a little bit in between but uh, we lean toward the Mecca hmm. and so uh, most people come here for the right reasons and uh, many people here do a very good job taking care of those people and uh, and taking them to good places a lot of gringos here work uh, with ayahuasca and all for the right reasons not to make a lot of money but to help people find what they're looking for so it's uh, in that way it's 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 going well i think yeah and um, uh, yourself are you uh how often do you do a ceremony? Oh, not that often. I've done uh, six ceremonies so far, and they were all individual ceremonies with a different shaman. And uh, they haven't been spectacular experiences for me, not spiritually speaking. They've been very interesting experiences. And uh, But I can't say that for me... I wish those dogs would shut up. <laughs> I can't say that for me it's been a very spiritual experience. So uh, in that respect, I'm still searching to find that uh, the proof of that. Because I came here, I was a skeptic, just like the man in my book. 
and uh, and uh, but I found that there are so many stories, so many uh, uh, um, uh, how do you say that uh, testimonies about what people experience that. I can only say it's not just your brain on drugs. There's something going on. There's something more to it. And I want to find out what that is. So that's why why I stay interested. And I will probably do uh, ayahuasca again and see uh, and see what happens. And so uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, for some people it can be uh, well. I consider myself uh, my life before and after. So it's yeah. become very different for me. Okay. Uh, How many ceremonies have you done? Uh, I've been here twice, so yeah. uh, uh, it would be like 12 or 13 okay. times. Yeah. But um, uh, I consider each time one time, because even yeah. though there's like seven ceremonies, they're all part of one big ceremony. Yeah, yeah. that wasn't the case for me. No. I just did one ceremony oh, yeah. and then a whole time nothing, and then another one with another shaman. Uh-huh. I just sat uh, in Capitari for a week as a facilitator. Uh, I'm working with a friend of mine, Andy, and he organizes ayahuasca retreats an entire week with uh, Don Lucho, who's a shaman. And then people go through that whole thing that you probably did. You mm. know, you stick to the diet, you have all kinds of cleansings and all kinds of baths, and uh, you do a tobacco purge and what have you. And there were four ceremonies in uh, in a five-day period. Maybe that's and, what you uh, should try. Yeah, exactly, yes. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. Mm. I just have to see if I can, first of all, afford it and if I can take the time off to do it because I really have to take mm. myself out of the... Uh, out of daily life and yes. uh, and go to a retreat like that, so I'm considering that and um, yeah that will that will probably happen. I just don't know when. I'm not I, in a great hurry. No, have you found a connection with the Icaros? Uh, have you had good experience with with the medicine songs during the ceremonies that I participated in? Yeah, yeah, I can't say so. No, 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 no I can't say so. There was one interesting experience. Um, that I haven't been able to figure out was my third one. I, uh, I drank ayahuasca with a shaman who's a, a, a lady who lives deep in the jungle, about a day's travel from here. And uh, and I started to vomit, to, to purge, and I couldn't stop. It went on all night long. And she worked with me very intensively, singing the Icaros and with the mapacho smoke and with the agua florida, working, working. And at six o'clock in the morning, I was exhausted, I was empty, but I kept wanting to purge more. And then she came to me and, uh, and uh, uh, what she did was she put her, uh, her lips on my head and sucked something out of my skull. And then she rolled over and she was choking and she was gagging and, uh, and she had, apparently on a spiritual level at least, removed something from my skull and then she did the same thing on both of my temples on each side of my head and then after she had done that then it was over I stopped purging and then I could finally go to sleep (laughs) and uh, the next day I was a mess but the day after that I felt fantastic and she told me there was something there inside that ayahuasca was trying to get out and it couldn't get it out and so she had to help it a little. Mm. And that was, apart from a horrible experience, was a very interesting and amazing experience because the effects lasted for months. I felt younger, I felt happier, I felt more energized. Uh, it was, uh, 
a very positive result, even though the, the ceremony and the, the whole night were, were just, just horrible, horrible. Yeah, but sometimes the like there is no bad trip, you know, the bad ones are the good ones. Yes, yeah. You know. I always say, and I say it in my book, I said every experience is better than no experience. Even if it's a bad experience, you know, you're on you're on a road, you're you're going somewhere. It's a, it's a, all a learning experience, good and bad. Mm. That doesn't make it pleasant, but uh, but it certainly has value of some kind. Yeah, mm. but it can be hard when you're going through hard times, of course. Yeah. You never leave uh, Iquitos. You mm. never go back to Holland. I did. <laughs> I did twice. Uh, it's, it's a long story. I don't know how much room you have, but. Uh, uh, I did twice. I went back in 2010. I felt that as a teacher I couldn't make ends meet. I couldn't make enough money. And I was tired of asking people to help me out. And um, I went back to Holland and I was there for three months and I couldn't find anything else. No work anywhere. I was just getting too old. And, um, and I was miserable. And eventually my mother said, you have to go back to Iquitos. You're happier there than you are here, and uh, I hate to see you like this. And, uh, and so, even though I didn't know how I would make ends meet here, I, uh, I came back. And then when I was back, I was just very happy because this is really the place where I belong. Mm. And then uh, soon after that, I got this job offer at the San Pedro Lodge, and I moved to San Pedro, and I ran the lodge there for two and a half years. And that was a very good time. Yeah. yeah. And then I left again earlier this year after I'd had uh, uh, some really bad experiences on a personal level and decided I was never going to come back, but the universe decided differently. <laughs> I searched for work all over the world. The only thing I could find in, in a nutshell is the story. The only thing I could find was a job teaching English in Colombia. And when I got there, the whole project fell apart. And it didn't happen. And then I was stuck in Colombia with very little money and no work and no income and, uh, and in, a, in a bad situation. And eventually the only uh, option I had left was to come back to Iquitos. And so I did. I was gone for about five months. And then I traveled from Colombia uh, via air and road and river to come back to Iquitos. And I just got back here about, uh, what is it, uh, about two months ago. And again, I feel like um, I've come back home. I missed it when I wasn't here, and uh, and it's the place uh, where I belong. I'm homesick for Iquitos when I'm in Holland, mm. and uh, and not the other way around. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So I've decided to stay and make it work, and uh, that's I just started this new project with Andy, and uh, so far so good. It's mm. going well. So how would you say is Iquitos a poor place or? In terms of wealth, money? Yeah, like the people, are they very poor or...? Yes, I would say so. Uh, there's 65% unemployment in Iquitos. And so people have to make due on a daily basis trying to earn a few solas. And they can do so in, in many different ways. They sell some food on the street or uh, they put a table outside their house. They sell some bananas and some oranges and... Uh, and that's how they make uh, a little bit of a living. There seems to be more motor taxis than people. <laughs> yes, there are many more. And, and there are at least three times as much as when I first arrived here. And so when I first arrived here, you didn't have things like traffic jams and, uh, and things like that. And now you do. 
So they keep adding more motocarros. I think there's probably a bit more wealth in Iquitos than there was uh, eight years ago when I first came here. But I've been to some very poor places in the world and even though I, know, I, I can see that it's poor here, it seems to be less poor than... It's yeah, not, it's not like destitute. People are not hungry. No. Yes, yes, that's true. People are not hungry. No. But that's because we live in, in, in a giant fruit basket. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's, you can always go catch a fish. You can always find a banana. Uh, you can always do a little work, earn a few solas and uh, cook a pot of rice. That's all. That's all within people's means. If you go to Berlin, there's 50,000 people who live there. And they're all poor, but they all have something to do. They're all uh, either carrying uh, cargo from the boat to the market or whatever it is that they do, and they all make a few bucks. And, uh, and nobody's rich, but nobody goes without food. People do go without basic health care and without good education, and their houses sometimes don't have walls. They're just a, a platform with a attached roof over it. Uh, but you will see many uh, satellite dishes and, uh, and, and widescreen TVs, uh, flat screen, what these things call. So it's more like poor as far as rights, like the right to go to school. And well, you know what it is in Berlin? Um, when I take uh, visitors there, they're all shocked at the poverty and the dirt. People live in their own dirt. The, the hygiene is terrible. But people live like that out of habit more than out of need you know and they live like that because that's where they're born that's their home that is what they know what they're used to and so they've lived like that for generations and they're going to keep living like that there's all kinds of NGOs who come here and want to help the people of Berlin and they have all the best of intentions and the people there are just not interested they didn't ask for help and you go there to help them and they say like oh well that's nice thank you you know and then, and then nothing changes because they're not interested. I'll give you one example. It's a good example. An NGO came here and went to Berlin and they started to hand out free mosquito nets. And they had uh, this educational program, teach the people how to use the mosquito nets. Uh, and say, look, if you put your baby, your children in the mosquito net at night, then they don't get malaria or dengue or something horrible like that. And the mosquito nets were impregnated and mosquitoes would die if they even sat on them. And so, really good initiative, you know, and that could make a real difference. And they handed out the nets and people said, thank you. And then when they came back to check how it was going, all the nets were gone. And they said, why aren't you using the nets? And the people said, oh, they were, they were so uncomfortable, it gets really warm inside. And so they took the nets and went fishing with them. And, and that is, that's how it goes. And then the, the whole fact that you say you can prevent malaria and dengue if you use the nets, it's just not their style, you know? And it just doesn't stick. And they probably say, oh yeah, that's a good idea, but when it comes to actually doing it, then that's an entirely different story. And so all kinds of projects like that with people who mean really well don't go anywhere because people just consider malaria part of life you know it's like a disease and it's uh, unpleasant but you can get treatment for it and then it's over and uh, and it's been like that for generations have you seen anything about uh, like oil companies and all these trying to extract their resources and uh, yeah. stealing land and this have you had this experience not not personally no that's all very uh, very much uh, hidden uh, outside of the city, people. Some people get work from oil companies, and they go out there and 
nobody really knows what goes on there. Uh, sometimes you see stories in the press, sometimes there are protests from uh, the natives, from indigenous peoples. Um, so you know what's going on, but it's very uh, invisible. Invisible. Oil companies here present themselves as if they are our biggest friends and they sponsor all kinds of uh, stuff and uh, make it look like they are uh, the best thing uh, since sliced bread. But the reality is, of course, that they destroy the forest and they poison the rivers and they kill the people. That's basically the bottom line. But it's all very, very uh, obscure. You don't get confronted with that a lot if you live here. Because mm. there are some NGOs who work trying to stop the oil companies. Yes. That's probably a better tactic than giving out mosquito nets. Yeah, that's that's one thing. You know, the the the, the war is fought in many battles in uh, many battlefields and you have to you have to pick your battles and some things can be won and some things cannot. And you can have a protest in the street or you can sit down with the big boys at the table and negotiate and and you have to fight it on every level. I know a few people here who do good work in that respect, who are also trying to protect the rainforest, who are actually sitting down at the table with the government, at government level, at the, with the Ministry of Agriculture and things like that, Ministry of Tourism. And it's very difficult because there's a lot of money involved and there are big companies involved who don't give a rat's ass about the rainforest, who just want to make a lot of money. And that's very hard to fight because uh, big companies own the politicians. It's the same here as it is everywhere. And so uh, they get away with a lot of stuff, which is unfortunate. The big threat here is uh, palm oil, not the uh, oil industry as in uh, petroleum, but uh, palm oil. That's the biggest threat to the rainforest here. And people don't know that palm, palm oil is in most products you buy, like yeah. shampoo and yeah. candy yeah. and everything. Yeah, shampoo, soap, I don't know what else. Uh, uh, you can use it uh, for food, but you can also use it for beauty products. It's in a lot of stuff and it is terribly, terribly damaging to the rainforest. These companies that have destroyed Indonesia are coming here to Peru and they want to and want to do it again. And, uh, and that is actually the biggest threat. There was a plan, I don't know where it stands now, a friend of mine is trying to fight this on with his, with his organization. There's a plan to cut down half of the Peruvian rainforest. And we're talking about uh, 17 million hectares that they want to destroy and turn into palm oil plantations. If that happens, then the entire Peruvian Amazon rainforest is doomed. And uh, that, would be, that would be a crime against humanity because it'll mean the end of uh, humankind as we know it. And. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the sheer size of it, the volume, and this is backed by a company, by, uh, no, I shouldn't say a company, a conglomerate, a Peruvian conglomerate called the uh, Romero Group. You can look them up online. The Romero Group owns 25% of the Peruvian economy in terms of retail, in terms of uh, wholesale companies. 25% of all the, the entire Peruvian economy is in their hands. So they have more money than God, and they can pretty much do what they want. Whatever they say goes, because they own the politicians. And so they are trying to push this through. They have already started here in a place called Tamshiaku. If you go there, you will find uh, uh, something like 5,000 hectares of rainforest destroyed without a permit. And then once it is destroyed, they say, oops, oh, well, we didn't have a permit. But now that it's gone anyway, let's use it. And then that's how they uh, get a permit. 
after the fact and uh, and then just legalize what has uh, what was an illegal uh, illegal clearing of the rainforest these people need uh, to do some ayahuasca ceremonies yes they do yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> that would that would have some uh, some interesting uh, impact, yes, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, totally, uh, totally obsessed with money, and money outrules everything. You know, I said, you know what? In 15, 20 years, you're going to have to eat your money and drink your oil because then there won't be anything else left. And uh, I'm really not optimistic in that respect. I think it's a very dire situation here. But the, there is this theory, it's uh, also spreading online, and uh, that maybe this is why uh, ayahuasca is out of the closet, because yeah. it makes the West more aware yeah. of this place. Yes, well, yes and no. Um, yeah, on a certain, on, to a certain extent that's true. Uh, I often believe that it is, uh, <clears throat> it is the ayahuasca in crowd um, preaching to itself and that we're just telling each other about this shift, this awakening, this enlightenment that's going around the world. I think that um, it's a nice idea. I think it's wishful thinking. I don't think it's happening. Uh, and, and we're just telling each other this and we keep confirming it and, and then we say, everybody's talking about it, but how many people are really talking about it? I think it's a very limited group and that the, these stories just keep circulating within that group. And uh, although, you know, I mean, yes, the, 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 it, it is expanding somewhat, but I think the vast majority of people are more concerned about, uh, about their daily lives and about their soap operas and about their, the electronic gadgets they want and, uh, and the money they make. And uh, not at all, not at all uh, aware or concerned about, the, about these issues. I think most people dismiss it as just the next fad. You know, whether it was Zen or it was hippie dum or it was whatever, whatever fad there was, like every 10 years you have something else. No, but I mean, like, some people can come here, they have an experience, they feel like, oh, we should protect Amazon. Yeah. They go back and, and um, they make moves. Yeah, but what do they do, really? What do they do? Because I always say the whole world is concerned about the rainforest, except the people who live there. The people who live here don't give a damn. Mm. If you go out in the forest and see what people do who live there, they, to, them, the, uh, to them a tree is a nuisance. A tree is just in the way. If they need a new field to grow some crops, they will burn it down. They don't care. And to them it doesn't have monetary value. To them it's just like, just get rid of it. And, uh, and, and they will sell it off for a handful of solis. You know, you have a, around Iquitos you have a number of uh, 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 sawmills where, uh, where wood is being processed. These sawmills are in the hands of maybe a dozen people who make a lot of money with wood. The people who work there make 10, 15 solis per day. They have to raise a family of an average of six children on that kind of money. And they don't care. They are working hard to destroy this rainforest, which disappears at, at, at a rate of two football fields per second worldwide. And they just care about making the money and raising the families and, and how many trees it costs or what the consequences are for the environment. They're totally ignorant about it. And, and they don't care. They don't care. So everybody's worried about the rainforest, but if the people here are the ones who should make the difference. I always say that tourism is what's going to save the rainforest. 
So I want to promote tourism. I want more people to come here, more people to work in tourism and, and start to realize that by saving the rainforest you can make money instead of cutting it down and, and selling it off for a few pennies. And uh, but it's uh, like I said, it's a, it's a dire situation. It's it's not good. But maybe also because they don't care about cutting down a few trees, is that if you do it on a small scale, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yes. It's the industrial scale, but they don't might not notice yeah. this industrial scale yeah. when they're just working there in the yeah. sawmill. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's 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 sheer ignorance. These pe- are people without an education, people who can barely read and write, you know. And they have always believed that, as, as it is with everything, that there is always more. That, it's, that there's an infinite number of trees and animals and birds and, uh, and what have you. And that, that that cannot be destroyed or that that will never disappear. They just don't, don't get it, you know. I mean, even if you look here at the market where all kinds of animals are sold and, and people just think, oh, there will always be more, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if, if, if hundreds of thousands of turtle eggs are being cooked and, and uh, sold at the market and people pay a few solas and eat a few eggs and they don't realize that they're actually uh, you know, eating a species that is on the brink of extinction. And, and just when you talk to them about it, they look at you like you're some crazy alien, you know, and they go like, they just shrug and laugh it off and have no answer and and really don't care and so there's a there's a, a, a lack of education and if you want to educate people about this and really start changing behavior and, and changing perceptions that takes an entire generation that's not something you can do within a year or so mm. so uh, um, so it doesn't look good this area here in Peru is the rainforest with the least damage uh, in the world, from uh, uh, from uh, logging and uh, and and, and uh, uh, slash and burn and what have you, but uh, but it doesn't look good. Between 2002 and 2012, um, how much was it again? Um, I think it was 15 million hectares. Or was it a million and a half? I can't remember now. <laughs> No, it was a million and a half per year. It was like 15 million hectares of rainforest have disappeared in Peru. You know, to what? To all those kinds of things, to uh, to logging and to agriculture and uh, and all kinds of uh, all kinds of things. And that is uh, and that is a lot. 15 million hectares. Imagine that every 10 yeah. years. Yeah. That's so. a lot. Have you ever managed to see a jaguar in the wild? No, 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 no. That's next to impossible. Yeah. Even if you go on a deep jungle expedition, it's very hard. It's, it's a matter of luck. If you're lucky, you will see one. Yeah. But that takes a real expedition, takes a lot of money and, uh, and a journey. That's why there's so few the uh, Jaguar documentaries. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. Some people set up see, these motion uh, sensors with cameras and then uh, maybe you can spot a Jaguar like that. But uh, I organized a trip for two ladies and they went all the way to the border with Brazil on a, on a three-week expedition and they heard Jaguars, but they didn't actually see them and they saw the, uh, the footprints in the, in the mud and uh, things like that. But they didn't get to see them and so... And this close to the city, there there aren't any. But they they probably saw them. <laughs> yes, the jaguar is a solitary animal. It has a, a habitat of 50 square kilometers, and they don't want to meet people. We're not on the menu, so they don't want to know us. And so indeed, if they smell humans or hear humans, they just take off. They go in the other direction. Yeah. yeah. No, I ask because I, I 
think it's a fascinating animal. Oh yes, absolutely. It's the biggest, uh, the biggest animal. Uh, well, uh, uh, the biggest mammal in the in the forest. Yeah, if you don't count the uh, the dolphins and uh, <laughs> and the manatees, which are water yeah. animals. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, if people want to get hold of your book, yes, how do they do that? Amazon.com. It's only available online. Uh, they can also go to my website, which is shamansandcharlatans.com, and then they can find all the information there and uh, find a link to uh, the place where they can order it. Okay, so let's finish this episode with a song by Lydian Gray called We. And um, while you listen to this song, I hope you consider the concept Freedom is in the mind. We play the game and we'll live the life. We all want to marry somebody else's wife. We are all masters of the spoken word. We are the children, yeah, we are the world. We are all plastic that melts at noon We can't carry a cross but we can carry a tune We are all windows, we are all doors We are all pimps and we are all whores We all take sides in some crucial debate Then we all get home and we masturbate We are all weapons ready to reload We are one-way tickets on a two-way road We wear our egos like a golden crown We are all on uppers but we're always down We die of crucifixion or heart attack We are all painted, we are all black and we never complain when they hammer the nails We just say thank you and we wiggle our tails We take our iron pills cause we made a straw We are never equal in the eyes of the law For the sake of prophets who have overdosed We are so artistic, we are so intense With the new bisexual heterosapiens We are all lesbian, we are all gay We have so many words and nothing to say We are all thinkers and reasonably sane We live for causes and we die in vain We put our faith in the neon star We're all fucking liars, that's what we are We are all water, we are all stone We are all water, we are all stone We are all water, we are all stone We are all together, we are so alone When I talk to God, it's called prayer When God talks to me, it's called schizophrenia And as we stand here naked waiting for applause We know there's a reason but there's no cause And as we hold our keys to the cosmic gate There's one thing that scares me Maybe It's getting late 
Go!